Hi and welcome to Sabi Reason's Malicious Life B-Side. I'm Ran Levy. A while ago, we dedicated two episodes to China's Golden Shield, the massive IT infrastructure project that combined internet censorship with pervasive state surveillance. Sometime later, we did another mini-series on China, this time about its unrestricted warfare philosophy and troubled relationship with Western technology companies such as Nortel. In these episodes, we talked a lot about how the Chinese government tries to enforce its rules and regulations on the country's intranet and how it restricts Western influence. But what we didn't talk about is war. Why? Why do the Chinese try to control the flow of information in and out of the country and force Western companies such as Google and Apple to play by its rules? In order to answer these questions, it's not enough to be like tourists who sample the country's food, music and architecture for a few days and then leave. China, as you probably know, has a very long history that goes back thousands of years and an extremely rich and varied culture. This, in turn, has a direct impact on how the Chinese view the global internet and the Western influence it brings. Our guest in the Unrestricted Warfare miniseries was retired Lieutenant Colonel Bill Haystag, who, after serving in the Marines for three decades, became a visiting scholar at China's People Liberation Army and one of the very few Western people who developed close ties with high-ranking military officials. Bill talked to Nate Nelson, our producer, And part of the conversation revolved around the impact China's history and culture has on its decisions and actions regarding the Internet. That part of the interview had no room in the context of the miniseries back then, and so we decided to save it for later and play it for you in a dedicated B-side episode. That's it from me. Enjoy the interview. Just talk a little bit about what we get wrong over here about them ah uh, yes this is a this will be difficult not for me but for you and your audience to perhaps uh, participate and understand they are human beings much like we are and culturally and historically um, they have uh, much deeper roots of cooperation with the United States and Western countries and than say we have as a short-term memory here in the United States. And when I say that um, and how that ties into the cyber realm is the fact that if you look back at the early 1900s, 1910, 1912s, specifically the Boxer Rebellion, uh, there were seven countries, including the United States, Russia, Germany, Japan, uh, France, uh, the UK, who essentially occupied the The sovereign soil and territory of China now what that did is it put a huge stain on their regard for Western cultures for us it was like well whatever we're going to go on trade and our military has to be there to protect our interests and the Chinese saw that as is strange is like well we're not threatening you militarily heck we don't even have a military we're still fighting with swords 
Uh, and they saw this essentially as a, a Western uh, narrative that they had to match. Bring it forward, as I mentioned, to 2009 when the U.S. Department of Defense announced the Cyber Command non-componentized equivalent. In 2010, the Chinese, the Russians, and the Iranians coincidentally said, well, we must match the U.S. When you link that back historically with the Chinese regard to us, it's as if they want to keep pace, but by the same token, they know that we are not going to, as Americans, attack them militarily unless someone uh, perhaps crazily pushes the wrong button or has uh, a wrong, a bad day, uh, not, a, not indicative of current polit- political situation. What that means then is that the, the way that the, the Chinese regard us is one of curiosity, but also one of an allied view. That doesn't mean that we have to be China lovers all. In fact, I've encountered folks that are viscerally uh, just in full of hatred and venom against the Chinese. But then when I ask them if they've ever been there or experienced the culture, they say, no, I only it's based on what I read or hear about in the media. Um, and I said, well, then give it a, another chance. I mean, if you look historically uh, during World War II, for example, uh, certainly the Korean conflict was a bit of an exception. Um, the Chinese have always tried to be our allies. Uh, it, a lot of it depends on the leadership. And if you look at perhaps uh, post-1949 when Mao Zedong took over, uh, there has been a, a definitely a change. But nonetheless, with, for example, Deng Xiaoping and Nixon and Kissinger, attempting to open relationships in the early 70s, uh, there has always been this overture of friendliness and willingness to work together. I will tell you in one of my experiences in Beijing in 83, my uh, friend, a a fellow student, and I walked around a corner in one of the deep, dark streets of Beijing. I mean, it was not deep and dark in the sense of it being uh, strange. It was just a deep and dark street, literally. And they looked at us and they're like, in perfect Chinese, they said, oh, Look, friends, the Russians are back to help us again. And we're like, well, no, we're not Russians. We're American students studying here uh, at uh, Nakai uh, Dashui, Nakai University in Tianjin. And they're like, oh, whoa, thank you. We did not like the Russians when they were here. They were very rude, took advantage of us, and tried to impose their political will on us, which we do not appreciate. So in that, in and of itself, gives you a little bit of a, a taste of the way that the Chinese view other cultures, uh, of those that they have not perhaps had a good relationship with. Malicious Life is sponsored by CyberReason. There is nothing better than a live simulation, especially when you're fighting cyber attacks that are becoming more and more complex. Defenders are always looking for the critical edge to reverse the attacker's advantage, and it's only through live attack simulations that you can truly see what might provide you that winning edge. Join CyberReason's global attack simulations to watch firsthand how attackers use the latest infiltration methods and execute on sophisticated malicious operations, and more importantly, how to end these operations before they happen. Reserve your spot today at cyberreason.com slash attack sim. You know, your point about the, the Chinese um, colonial history is so interesting to me because I've never thought about, um, because now now I'm for, for the first time ever thinking about Chinese, uh, the, the Chinese government um, policy towards Western companies in this context. Is there a causal connection between um, China's sort of 
internal keeping, you know, uh, Facebook, Skype out of the country and their sort of national history of, of colonialization? Well, I, I would you're on a good point there. I wouldn't say that it's associated necessarily with colonialism and the efforts to thwart it from a Chinese perspective. It's more a fact that they want to keep their sovereign space, thus the internet, as clean and wholesome and as Chinese as, as they possibly can. Um, you'd mentioned... Uh, or perhaps you have not yet mentioned it, but the you know the Golden Shield Project, the Great Firewall of China, um, was essentially meant as a as a way to keep their space clean, so that no one would possibly ever accuse them of hacking any other country or causing any malfeasance. And I, I will tell you, with the thirteen or so current laws, everything from uh, espionage to counterespionage to privacy of children to privacy of individuals. Um, all equates to national security, and it's enforced by not only the National Cyber Police, the Gong'anbu, as well as the uh, Chinese military. The government takes uh, Chinese government takes this very seriously in terms of wanting to keep their space safe uh, from any sort of Western influences. The advent of, for example, oh my gosh, any number of the social media platforms that are there are meant for the Chinese to use. But in essence, they also will then block uh, Western companies such as Google. Uh, the Google uh, issue is an interesting one because the servers for Google, as it's now known, were obviously located in Hong Kong. Um, but because they were promoting uh, destabilization and anti-communist rhetoric, even uh, perhaps positioning themselves as anti-communist leadership, Naturally, when you do that as a company or an individual to a country like China, they can basically say, you're not welcome here, and basically cancel their ability uh, to allow uh, indexed or non-indexed searches inside uh, the People's Republic of China. I will tell you, on, on one of my trips, I took a Chromebook just to test it. Uh, as you know, Chromebooks are Google uh, OS-based. Uh, none of it worked at all, period. Now, I will tell you another interesting story. Some of my uh, military contacts have Gmail addresses. <laughs> you know, you can stop me if I'm taking this too far, uh -huh. but it occurs to me that, you know, your your explanation that they want to keep um, their internet sort of clean and, and wholly Chinese. By the way, you can speak freely about Cold and Shield. We've covered it on the show. Our listeners will be familiar. Um, your description there doesn't really fully, uh, I'm not fully satisfied with it because if, if for example, we had that same policy here. Like if you described to me that America wanted our internet to be American and clean, it would, it would strike me as very odd, right? This is a cultural thing. Where does that cultural thing come from with the Chinese, if not that history with uh, Western imperialism? What is it that sort of drives these policies? How did we get to the place? Is it Mao Zedong? Where, what is mm -hmm. the origin of these sort of um, policies? Well, certainly, I mean, it, it does resonate with Mao Zedong, but it does go back uh, thousands of years. Um, if you are familiar with the Chinese characters of Zhong and Guo, Zhong Guo, which means China, it literally represents the center of the earth. Uh, the Chinese for many years, as you know, ruled the planet. They were the de facto default uh, king of the of the hill when it came to cultural expansion. Bring that forward uh, throughout the years. Of course, they've had their slips. And what has happened then 
what the Chinese people have discovered is when they are dissatisfied with the leadership, which is the basis for the current rules and wholesome internet inside China, when the Chinese people historically have been dissatisfied with that, they rise up in an insurrection. Um, again, not indicative of or reflective of what's happening here in the United States, and basically overthrow the government. So what you have essentially is under uh, Hu Jintao, who uh, President Hu Jintao, who transitioned power to the new leader for life, uh, President Xi Jinping in 2012-2013, they are basically saying that any uh, non-Chinese cultural uh, mores will not be tolerated. And there are essentially five things that if you are a foreigner or even a Chinese can get you arrested and basically uh, uh, accused of being a spy in a loose sense are uh, any Western religion, specifically Falun Gong, any anti-Chinese cultural rhetoric, any anti-Xi Jinping or anti-leadership mantras, uh, and of course, anything that has to do with pornography. Uh, thus, some of the rules that they have passed regarding protection of children and some of the operating systems that they have tried to implement, which failed. Uh, but really, the Internet of today in, in China really resonates within what they are trying to do is keep their honor clean in the face of a world that is essentially dissolving around them. The challenge, though, which is uh, you know certainly part of what the narrative uh, was or is here in China, is the Chinese were indeed afraid that if uh, Trump were to remain president, it would perhaps lead to further destabilization. Uh, The fact that Biden, in this case, not to make this a political statement, is China-friendly in their eyes. They viewed their resolve to keep themselves uh, in power as the Communist Party of China that much more resolute. And of course, now they're, they're kind of pointing their fingers and saying, see, democracy doesn't work. So they do believe culturally, politically, militarily, linguistically, that they are indeed still the center of the earth. And that is one of their mandates, uh, certainly the uh, Project uh, 2025, um, a number of other different, uh, made in China 2025, sorry, and a number of other programs really uh, are being used to foment and and publicize, promote that uh, existence of China as the culture by which the rest of the world will be judged. Okay. Um, Now I want to talk about this weird little time in Chinese history, at least it seems from the outside, when all of this, um, all of these policies you just mentioned sort of seem to loosen up, starting with Deng Xiaoping and um, moving a little bit into Hu Jintao, specifically um, the building of China's internet. Because on, on our program, as I mentioned, we covered how, uh, as an example, Nortel led the charge in building China's censored internet. Um, could you talk about Um, what allowed for these kinds of arrangements and relationships to work between Western sort of freedom capitalism corporations and China's more authoritarian regimented communist party? Um, How did that work? How did it arise? Because it's not really the most obvious repairing. Yes, yes. This is a very good question. And actually, uh, while Nortel's uh, core telco equipment was part of it. They were not the prime candidate and prime mover for the Chinese internet. In my first book, uh, much of the internet infrastructure uh, predates 1996. Uh, And in fact, in current events, their adaptation of IPv6 um, has encouraged and, and leads to the fact that they tried to be technologically advanced. What that means then is at the time in history, when they were building out the internet, they needed foreign experts. They needed uh, Alcatel, to give them the glass, the fiber, to to build out the uh, infrastructure. They needed Nortel 
uh, to help them with the core routers to connect their universities, to connect their government. And they certainly needed Cisco in terms of helping them build the, uh, the Great Firewall of China vis-a-vis the Golden Shield project. So they've had to rely heavily on Western technologies. Now, make no mistake that if you do bring intellectual property into the People's Republic of China and don't register it, and certainly in the early days, uh, pre-96, even even today, uh, big companies, including Apple and others, are failing to realize that they need to register the intellectual property. If they do not, a Chinese citizen has the right in front of a Chinese court to claim that intellectual property as their own. And the Chinese government will always side on the side of the Chinese. And thus, the Chinese citizen will say, hey, you want to continue to introduce your uh, broadband wireless, your mobile phones, your uh, unique devices such as iPhone or iPad? Then you need to pay me in uh, based on the adjudication of my lawsuit under Chinese law the million or so dollars that I'm requesting of you. Otherwise, you will be forbidden from continuing to use or introduce your product into China. Now, this is important because if you look at Apple uh, 2012 or so, the market cap for China was $8 billion. Paying off $100 you know, million to a Chinese person to satisfy a legal claim would be a drop in the bucket. So 2012 is actually, I mean, it's realistically, it's not that long ago. Are there still Western companies who are still trying this, who are still participating um, in China's data infrastructure like they were back in, you know, 2003, 2004? Um, is this still happening? If so, uh, how has um, the Chinese government approach changed from when they were working with Cisco, Nortel, and the like? Yes. Yeah, so answer your question, the order that you asked it, a very good one. Uh, there are successful Western companies that have actually adapted to these new, uh, what we would regard as uh, very invasive uh, cybersecurity concerns regarding their national security as China. One of those is actually IBM. Now, historically, you and your listeners may remember uh, that the Chinese had banned a variety of different technologies from not only the government, the military, uh, but one of those in particular was the use of Western servers and uh, serving server operating systems in the financial industry. And you can imagine companies that would perhaps uh, provide those here in the West, so it just kind of caught them aghast. Well, IBM went to a company called Larkspur. Larkspur manufactures servers for the Chinese financial industry as the sole provider. And what IBM did to their credit is they gave them the processes the procedures and the methodology to create servers that would meet the requirements of the Chinese government using organic Chinese technology, while also keeping pace with the Western world regarding financial transactions uh, internationally. So there's a, that's a good success story, actually.